Anarchy is a very negative and problematic word for most people. And in fact, it was problematic also for some of the people that would end up calling themselves and be called anarchists in the 1800s, which is the time period where we are headed. These people did not want anarchy in the sense of chaos, but they believed in a certain philosophical and political rule where there would be no state and some thought of a form of decentralized socialism run by communes working together, in our main character today will categorize himself as a collectivist towards the end, even though he is seen as one of the key figures of political anarchism. For this podcast, it might be beneficial for you to put aside some modern usages of certain political terms, because we are going straight into the storm that is the emergence of many forms of leftist politics and philosophy that will all be caught under the huge umbrella term socialism, but might have had a different meaning then than what they have now. There will be literally hundreds of different branches of socialism at this time period we are talking about, and the power struggles will be intense. It is crucial to remember that for these people we will be talking about, they had no idea what would follow in the 1900s, but their ideas will still play a huge part for decades to come. After the Russian Revolution, people would celebrate the day when their new system had outlasted the Paris Commune of 1871. Paris Commune was seen as an attempt at a more liberal socialist or a political anarchist rule, and they were celebrating because they felt it proof that their form of socialism was right. And as we know, the Soviet Union will last until 1991, but how do you measure success, right? And what would the socialists of the 1800s think? We are about to dive into the high-flying, idealistic optimism and philosophy of the 1800s through the life of one of the key figures in this movement, a person that is largely forgotten by now, but that really came close to changing the trajectory of the political left that laid the foundations of what would come later. The man we will be talking about today became the fiercest rival to Karl Marx, claiming that the dictatorship of the proletariat and communism would only lead to new ruling classes and more oppression. Today we are discussing the extraordinary life of the revolutionary adventurer Mikhail Bakunin. Do not 
This episode is a bit special for me personally, because this figure Bakunin has not only been forgotten in many historical and philosophical circles, but he has also been a forgotten part of my life for many years. You see that in my youth, I was what you would call a punk rocker that dyed my hair in various colours and that read up on a lot of political anarchism. So I was really young, we're talking 14, 15, 16, 17 perhaps, before my interest shifted and I suppose you can call me quite moderate politically today. But Bakunin was the hero of my youth and I used to carry with me a copy of his book, God and the State in my jacket. Yeah, I was, I was that kind of kid. In Norway, where I grew up, you had to deliver a final piece of work in school that was the one big assignment everybody dreaded before you entered uh, what is close to what you would call high school in the US. It is the first test that some sort of academic writing kids have to do. And I, of course, chose to write about Mikhail Bakunin. I was 15 years old and I got an A on that assignment. Now, this was in 1996, so I'm 42 today. But the thing was that I had several friends that were also into punk and left-wing political thought. We played in a punk band together with political texts and so forth. And one of my friends, called Knut, wanted to borrow my assignment so that he could read up on Bakunin himself. And naturally, I gave it to him. In 1996, tech was of course much less sophisticated, so I'd written the assignment on an old computer and printed it out, but I didn't really have any backup or any more copies than this one printed edition, not that I minded, I think I really felt done with working with this, and I never really gave it much thought after. That was until a year or two ago when Knut, still a very close friend of mine, said, Francis, here's your assignment back, and gave me the now yellowish pages written with a slightly odd font and printer ink that is getting faded and starting to become a little difficult to read. At first, I really didn't have any strong desires to read it again almost 25 years later, as I imagined that it would be quite embarrassing. But I still thought that perhaps Bakunin and especially his power struggles with Karl Marx would be a good topic for this podcast at some point far down the road. Then there has been what I feel is a slight shift, both in terms of recent events and a couple of new books coming out, some of them becoming bestsellers, that make some of these thoughts from the 1800s come a little bit more back into the spotlight. So I decided that I wanted to do this episode now, and I will in the end try to analyse some of this with contemporary glasses on. However, as the 15-year-old may did not sufficiently see, it's quite clear that these thoughts that we are discussing must be interpreted in the light of the time when they emerged. I will put my own little story aside for now, but after we have concluded on our main story, I will regrade my old assignment to see how I think 15-year-old me did, and then draw a few parallels on how some of this has re-emerged in some extent in modern intellectual circles, and that will be at the end of what will be a two-part mini-series. One more caveat. I know there are a lot of emotion around these topics even to this day. So if you're a huge fan of, for example, Karl Marx, I will apologize a little bit in advance. I'm well aware that many people will say that the ideas of Karl Marx were not at all implemented as intended in, for example, the Soviet Union. 
and that it is completely unfair to blame Marx for what Stalin, for example, did. And I agree. So we will not try to blame Marx for later atrocities, even as we will be exploring that the left in the 1800s could have taken a different path if Marx had lost internal power struggles. So there will be no saints or outright heroes in this story, only a bunch of rather resourceful people that are still full of human flaws and ideas. But let's start for real. Mikhail Alexandrovich Bakunin was born in the village of Priamukino in the Tver province in Russia in 1814. This is northwest of Moscow. His father was a landowner and the family came from nobility and there was really nothing that would point to him becoming a revolutionary and a rebel from his upbringing. I suppose we can call him an upper middle class boy in a Tsarist Russia that at the time was ruled by Alexander I, kind of a rather you know shifty historical figure but not completely estranged from more liberal political reforms himself. The 1800s in Europe is all in all a time period that is just full of change. It's an incredibly interesting time in history as we are seeing many political and philosophical ideas bubbling up at the same time as we are seeing many new nation states forming. So the Europe that goes into the 1800s is radically different from the one that enters the 1900s and the looming world wars. This is the time of study circles, philosophy, debates, men for most of the time sitting in cafes, smoking and discussing high-flying ideas and concepts. But there's also a feeling that change is about to come and not only is it about to come, it's a feeling that change is really inevitable and indeed ongoing, all this amplified with the growing industrialization and technological breakthroughs, you are starting to have really uh, big railroad networks being built up, big steamships, the telegraph is making its entrance, newspapers are being printed and distributed like never before, and the world is quickly becoming much smaller. From many people's point of view, the world simply cannot continue as it has until this point. There's a lot of scepticism against the almost medieval monarchies in Europe that many people feel are way past the due date. And of course, this is also in the aftermath of the French Revolution that kicked off in 1789. That also was partly inspired by the American Revolution of 1776. And if we are just to briefly think about uh, the century before this, also for a short bit, the 1700s, this is the Europe of Voltaire, the French writer, historian and playwright that will be a huge part of the Enlightenment. He might even have been in Isaac Newton's funeral, if you remember our two episodes in Isaac Newton. A massive part uh, of the intellectual scene in Europe is writing huge amounts of stuff that will be spread all around, promoting free speech, criticizing governments and the church, spreading all these new sciences and new ideas about, and Voltaire will also be one of those that will manage to do it in a popular, witty, easy-to-understand way for broader layers of the population. 
He will be constantly exiled from France for his writings, but dying as a hero and is seen as one of the sharpest minds of his age in the late 1700s. And Bakunin is one of many, many people that will be strongly inspired by people like Voltaire and his desire for individual freedom in what they see as more and more oppressive societies lacking checks and balances. Entering the 1800s, Europe has just a bunch of states and monarchies and dukedoms and whatnot that will not live to see out the end of the century. For example, Italy, as we know today, is not a thing when we are entering the 1800s, neither is Germany, and the unification of both these two large nation-states and the processes that leads up to them is kind of intertwined with our story, and so will several of the rebellions and the wars that take place all over Europe in this century be. Just to put it into perspective, even the Pope in the 1800s had his own small nations known as the Papal States. So this is an old world on the massive collision course with a new industrialized world of new philosophy and technology. And this is the all-important backdrop we need to have a sense of to understand where the ideas we'll see are coming from. One of the biggest mistakes I think one often does when discussing political ideas from this time period is forgetting what reality they come from and how this time period was. There are also very strong winds of different kinds of nationalism blowing alongside radical ideas and we will start seeing the creation of some of the beliefs that will echo into the both world wars really later on. Ironically, much of this nationalism has the notion that it is somehow rooted in the past, while it is most of the time invented there and then. You get various folk costumes and music and such. It is only created or inspired from a kind of partly imagined past that has really little roots in history, but that serves the purpose of creating new shared national identities. Furthermore, the 1800s is a very romantic epoch, both figuratively but also quite literally. As in arts, we get what we call the Romantic Era, around the, this time when music and visual arts focuses on swirling emotions and pathos, where it earlier on evolved around the fate and her deity. Now, it is about um, the before-mentioned nationalism in nature and science and big ideas. Just to take one example... The composer Johann Sebastian Bach, living before this area, previously had dedicated all his work to God, and we he used a very rigid system of composing, although utterly brilliant. We get the Mozart challenging this somehow, and then we have Beethoven that towards the end of his life will really change music styles from something orderly composed to either the pleasure of God or emperors to become something about the big emotions, uh, although not exactly anti-establishment, but these these sort of radical changes are noticeable for everyone, at least in the cities, from workers to emperors. Beethoven actually dedicated a work to Tsar Alexander I and in turn met the composer and gave him a diamond or something when they met in 1814, which is the same year that Bakunin is born. So this is the backdrop, a lot of emotion. Some of these heads of state at this time, they are also understanding very well what is 
going on. They're not completely disconnected. And they are also concerned with social reform and emerging industrialization. So even at the top level, there is to some extent a feeling that the times are indeed a changing uh, and they also know that maintaining the status quo might not be possible or even desirable. So even though luxurious enough, it's not necessarily a great gig to be, for example, Tsar at this time. And rather comically, actually, when Alexander I dies in 1825, no one wants to become the new Tsar, as the, the man he intended to take over secretly said, that, you know, mate, I just really, really don't want this gig. So you have this situation slash crisis that historians often like to call an interregnum where you don't have a king or an emperor and it lasts for about a year in Russia. One often defining feature for these leftist intellectuals that Bakunin is a part of and we will talk about is that they at the time are in many cases atheists or they are at least flirting with the notion that a deity is a tool of oppression used by people in power rather than something real. And being an atheist is not really something people have been much previously to this time period, even though you have people like Voltaire paving the way for this with huge criticism and ridicule of the church. It really comes more clearly uh, to us than when Nietzsche famously stated that God is dead, but this is in 1882. And even though that is a little later than Bakunin that we will discuss, he also gives you an idea of this by writing something that even if God did exist, it would be necessary to depose him, end quote. Anyways, I'm jumping a little bit back and forth here, but just to give you a sense of what kind of politics we're talking about. Growing up, Bakunin moves to St. Petersburg to go to military school as a 14-year-old, there are few sources from this time, as I said, but Kunin is in many ways largely forgotten. So there is not uh, information in abundance here, but there was a short biography written in 1920 by a man called Guy Aldred, where he, he includes some letters Bakunin wrote back to his parents, painting a picture of a boy that has quickly grown disillusioned. Quote, Here begins a new era in my life. Until now, my soul and imagination were pure and innocent. They were not stained in any way. But here, in the artillery school, I became acquainted with a black, foul, low side of life. And if I was not dragged into the sins of which I was often the witness, I, at any rate, got so used to it as to have ceased to wonder at anything now. I got used to lying. End quote. So there's a bleak image of a young boy meeting the harsh realities of Russian military, but his tone changes radically when he's finally finished at military school and becomes an officer. Quote, at last I pass as an officer, 18 years old, thus begun truly a new epoch in my life. From a condition of slavish military discipline, I suddenly gained personal freedom. I, so to speak, burst upon the free world. I could not undertake to describe the feelings that possessed me. I only can say that thanks to this vigorous change, I commenced to breathe freer. I began to feel nobler. After such a prolonged spiritual sleep, my soul has awakened to spiritual life again. End quote. I mean, if anything, it tells us something about the pathos-filled spirit of the century. Imagine an 18-year-old today writing on TikTok, my soul has a 
awakened to spiritual life again. I mean, straight into therapy. Uh, joking. Bakunin is not at all, you know, at this time in a position to the Tsar. Quite the contrary, he writes home that um, that the Russians, unlike the French, did not um, uh, would never topple their monarchs. And you know, well, so much for that. But it is interesting that he's even discussing this. It shows the revolution was a hot topic. People talked a lot about it and that the shockwaves from the French Revolution, of course, culminating with them dramatically decapitating their royals was very much on people's minds and that its um, effects might not even have been fully seen yet at this point. So just want to give you an image of how this man looks like. He's a big guy. He's six foot four, which is roughly 193 centimeters tall. In the middle of his life, he will be roughly 120 kilos. So he will also later on grow a huge beard and have big black unruly hair. I suppose you can imagine him as kind of a hagrid from the Harry Potter movies, just, you know, with a bit of an anarchical urge to destroy the existing societal structures or something. Not necessarily very Harry Potterish, but there you go. In the only picture of him as a young man, however, he has still not gotten his famous beard, but have a bit of a dandy moustache. Anyways, from here on, Bakunin seems to have a conflict with both his father and his superiors in the army, and he is spending time in Minsk and Grodno in Poland and in Lithuania before he's returning to Moscow in 1835, and he's 21 years old, and he meets a man called Nikolai Stankiewicz. Uh, and at this point, it seems that he's changed. He's no longer so happy with his life as a military officer, and, you know, he's an upper middle class son of a landowner. He has a nobility title or two to his name, but he's getting disillusioned. And he meets Stankovich. He's another young Russian. He has been influenced by the political thoughts and ideas coming from Europe and France in particular. And he starts arranging study circles where young Russian men are discussing the new ideas. And quite shortly after meeting this guy, Bakunin decides to quit the army, just escaping a charge for desertion. Basically, at this quite young, early point in his life, it's a point of no return for Bakunin and his path towards a life as a revolutionary. And it's not completely unlikely that Tsarist agents are already at this early point starting to keep track on him, They are both very curious and scared of the radical political and philosophical uh, philosophical developments, almost sort of viewing it as something fascinating, alien, attractive, yet dangerous. Now, Stankovic dies at only 26 years old of tuberculosis. And this is something that for us is a huge uh, part of the 1800s that we tend to forget this disease that are really cutting so many lives short. There will, of course, be a huge medical revolution later on, coming with immunization and vaccines and discovery of uh, discovery of penicillin later on. But tuberculosis is a massive killer. And also, when reading literature from the 1800s, you will very often come over people that are fighting this disease for years before it eventually breaks you down. Just horrible, horrible disease. From this moment on, however, a fire is lit in Bakunin and he starts to study philosophy. 
Now, the Tsarist Russia is of course not too keen on young men thinking too much and hard about the dissolving of power, new ways of organising society, so a lot of the French philosophers are banned from the Russian universities. Russia is at this time seen as rather backwards. You do still have serfdom there, for example, meaning that peasants belong to the land. They were doomed to work until their deaths. That was a form of slavery, really, from feudal times. But even though backwards, you in parallel still have a very vivid scene of intellectualism and literature growing. This is, for example, when you have the famous writer Dostoevsky that is a contemporary to, to Bakunin. The German philosophers are, however, not banned in Russia, so Bakunin, like many others, will be hugely inspired by the German philosopher called Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Now, Hegel is a very fascinating character. Partly, he is famous for his dialectic model. That is basically the idea that progress is being made by a pattern of thesis, antithesis and synthesis, both in a historical and societal context. What that means is that he thinks that reason and freedom are both historical achievements made and developed by humankind, so it's nothing natural meaning that the path towards more individual freedom and societal progress are goals reached by systematic discussion and constant arguments and counter-arguments that we have worked us up towards this part uh, of more advanced ways of living. And this is basically how he sees the world progressing. And I'm no expert in philosophy, but I'll, I'll try to explain it a little better. So it simply means that what brings our thought system forward is the presentation of one idea, that's the thesis, before that is met by a contrary thought, a counter-argument, and that's the antithesis, before a thought will reach a better idea based on the best parts of the thesis and antithesis, meaning the synthesis, and that the synthesis will become another thesis that again can be challenged by new antithesis and so on, and that way bringing the world forward, finding better solutions. Now, it's not necessarily very controversial, but it is a huge inspiration to many people uh, that are constantly asking what truth is, and it's also very much in the spirit of the 1800s. So you have a lot of high-flying discussions where disagreement and argument is seen as something that is positive. You have argument, counter-argument, conclusion, and then new counter-arguments. And even in business life today, you can see some of this, you know, people will often actively seek this kind of dynamic and find sort of devil advocate uh, kind of arguments in order to make sure that they reach the best business decisions. Bakunin becomes friends with another Russian thinker called Alexander Herzen that will play a role later on and will be his partner later before he decides that he needs to leave the censorship of Russia for Berlin in 1840 in order to further his studies in philosophy. Now, a lot of Russians and others, I might add, are at this point drawn to the big cities of Europe because of their intellectual circles, so typically Berlin, Paris, London, etc., and they will quite often be multilingual. 
If you read Dostoevsky, you will often come across Russian-speaking or knowing French, for example, so if you were an educated person, you would likely have quite a bit of knowledge about various European languages, particularly French and German, and to some extent English, and the same will be the case for Bakunin that will speak and write in several different languages. In 1842, he makes his debut as a political writer writing the essay Reaction in Germany under the pseudonym Jules Elisard with the subtitle Fragments by a Frenchman. And it is rather uncomprehensive, but it still makes the case for revolution quite clearly and that one must look ahead and not so much to the past when improving society, closing with what became a rather famous part of anarchist doctrine later on, quote, the passion for destruction is a creative passion too, end quote. So it's very much out with the old, in with the new, and reading Bakunin now, he is surprisingly full of caveats, even though he wants a very radical transformation of the societies as he knows them. But while he's not completely writing off armed and violent revolution as one option to get there, he's not really propagating it very much either. So he's not a sort of headless radical. It's also worth noting that he's not promoting unlawfulness uh, he's actually not at all against organizations and system. In fact, he sees these as some kind of secret weapons that the state and church have had the, to their disposal that the masses have not. And he sees what will later become the International Working Men's Association, often only known as the International, as the global organizational tool that can coordinate working people in order to make societies that are not dependent on nation states and what he sees as oppressive states, but that provide the direction and means to help societies organize themselves based on what is broadly speaking socialist ideas founded on equal distribution of material goods and a huge focus on individual freedom. And when it comes to Bakunin and many other peoples of this time, the names that they will be given and also give themselves will vary hugely, as we touched upon in the intro. So there will be anarchist, communist, socialist, freedom socialist, nihilist, anarcho-syndicalist, collectivist, democrat, and so forth. Actually, all of these are names that Bakunin alone is given and will call himself, making this confusing. But also, it paints a picture of a fragmented political movement to the left. And one quite legitimate criticism that will come is that many of these leftist philosophers and revolutionaries will not manage to agree on very much, perhaps forgetting the synthesis part of dialectic doctrine somehow. And it's actually one of those things that Bakunin, very frustrated, uh, uh, will try to sort of address later on in his life, try to sort of gather people around one idea. Uh, I find it quite hilarious in the Monty Python movie, The Holy Grail, if you've seen that, you have the legendary King Arthur travelling around, gathering the best knights in the land, and he comes to a place where people are gathering dirt and proclaims that he is their king and they will respond, well, I didn't vote for you. And Arthur then explains that you don't get a vote in a monarchy and then ask who their lord uh, is before the other dirt digger tries to explain the not-so-straightforward way that they rule themselves not having a lord, saying, We take it in turns to act as sort of executive officer for the week, but all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting by a simple majority in the case of purely internal affairs, 
but by a two-thirds majority in the case of purely external affairs, end quote, with an annoyed Arthur just constantly interrupting, saying, yes, 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 I see. <laughs> I just think it's very funny and kind of spot on. And also in the movie Life of Brian, you have this anti-Roman revolutionary movement, the People's Front of Judea, who actually hates the Judean People's Front even more than the Romans, which I also just find hilarious. And there, there will be some grain of truth in this when we get to the international and uh, what happens uh, there later on. Anyway, so digression. Bakunin, he moves to Paris in 1842, and he will meet Karl Marx there for the first time in 1844. In the beginning, the meetings between these two are more of a passing-by kind of uh, meeting, a little bit as a result of being within the same social and political circles, what is a little bit more important for him at this point is that he meets another famous thinker called Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. Now, he is a man that is only a few years older than Bakunin, but will actually be the first person to coin the term anarchist, and he's a kind of central figure in this movement. So we must talk a little bit about Proudhon, because in many ways he is a predecessor of Bakunin, and in some terms perhaps you can call him a mentor. In the small fragmented anarchist pockets you'd have in the 1900s, like in the 60s and 70s, a hippie kind of environment, perhaps you would typically see Proudhon and Bakunin in addition to a later person called Peter Kropotkin as the three central people of political anarchism. Proudhon got famous for looking into private property, concluding radically that property is theft, and has in many ways been seen as a you know extremist, like most anarchists, to be fair. However, there is some need for balance here, as some of this is coloured by the power struggles that would follow where the anarchists would lose and the other socialists would portray them rather badly. Proudhon believed that radical change was possible with purely peaceful means. So unlike the desire for armed revolutions that one would see several places else, he was not in that category. On the contrary, he was a rather peaceful family man that would later in life modify his view quite a lot, even though there's a bit of discussion with him, he's accused for a lot of anti-Semitism and, and various things. In fact, of these three big anarchists, Proudhon, Bakunin, Kropotkin, it really seems that Bakunin is the only one that has some belief in violent revolution, uh, although we'll get into that later on, it's not straightforward, and the other two are very much anti-violence and anti-war, so these are kind of very peaceful people, really. What anarchy literally means is no rule, or rather no government, depending on your translation, but the common misconception is that it also means that these early thinkers uh, identifying as anarchists wanted chaos. It is more precise to say that they wanted more radical change to society than many other socialists of the time, especially in regards to the need for a central state or not, but often with less radical means, meaning not necessarily that they wanted armed revolution and without the dictatorship of the proletariat. So we're into some of the differences here between uh, communism and anarchism. I could just go into it a little bit. So, on the contrary, these anarchists, they had several ideas of various intricate systems that would take the role of a state and governing body that they saw as oppressive. So, 
we are more into the territory of the Monty Python sketch with the character talking about taking turns as executive officer and so forth. Prudhoe believed that revolution should be a moral process that demanded the highest ethics of everyone involved, so very much the opposite of killing and pillaging. Now, one would of course potentially argue that this is utopia, and that was exactly what fans of more violent revolution argued. This quote-unquote proper, or at least regional anarchists, are all rather mild, but it's not without reason that they're also seen as extreme, because they are often talking about abolishing huge societal structures, while at the same time they are talking down capitalism, and they're also talking down large amounts of private property, uh, and so forth. Just to give you a taste of exactly this in the words of Proudhon, quote, Capital in the political field is analogous to government. The economic idea of capitalism, the politics of government or of authority, and the theological idea of the church are three identical ideas linked in various ways. To attack one of them is equivalent to attacking all of them. What capital does to labor and the state to liberty, the church does to the spirit. This trinity of absolutism is as painful in practice as it is in philosophy. The most effective means for oppressing the people would be simultaneously to enslave its body, its will and its reason." End quote. So, to put it very simply, capitalism, the state and the church are all means of oppression, and to be fair, that do rather fit uh, well within the extreme box, as many would argue that those things are indeed many, many different things, and sure, they can be used to oppress people, but there are also plenty of examples on the opposite, and to some extent, Proudhon and later on Bakunin kind of see this and try to modify and specify their thoughts. Because if you have like a typical liberal democratic view of things, you might point to the obvious problems with kind of extreme uh, wordings like this saying, okay, if you are all of a sudden going to ban everything that you don't like, then you become the oppressor in the eyes of others. So these early anarchists or liberal socialists are kind of aware of this, constantly thinking about how one can achieve the greatest possible individual freedom and Bakunin is emphasizing that in a new society, they are not at all looking to ban the church, but to create societies where you can freely criticize and ridicule and um, that and other power structures and other ideas without fear of prosecution. And for those true to a dialectic mindset, they will constantly change their points of view when encountering better counter-arguments. So they are trying themselves not to be kind of, you know, fanatical about this. The various thinkers in what we, for a lack of a better word, will just call the political left as an umbrella term, they will have also very different ideas about power structures and individual freedom. Uh, they are writing letters and books and essays in the newspapers of the time, uh, suggesting all their various ideas. So it's a 
bit hard to pin everybody down or put everybody into the same ideological bucket. But if you are to simplify things, we will be starting to see a difference in the socialist scene where you have the people that will identify as some sort of political anarchists that are largely critical to the state and want to abolish some of the fundamental structures in the societies whereas others are seeing the institutions as rigged against the working classes, but without necessarily seeing the point of getting rid of them, at least not immediately. In classical Marxism, the idea is that the state will eventually wither away, as it will be deemed unnecessary after the period of the dictatorship of the proletariat and the transition to a communist economy, where the working classes would take control over the state and means of production. For anarchists like Bakunin, however, all power corrupts, and the state is a system that is designed to oppress, in his opinion, and that you can't turn it into your own benefit. You know, it's a little bit like the one ring in Lord of the Rings, like you can't bend its will to your power kind of thing, its power is evil and will intoxicate you and make you a tyrant like those before you. Furthermore, and this is perhaps not been clearly enough communicated, is that for many people at this time, the proletariat is not necessarily the majority of the population, but rather factory workers in the cities, whereas anarchists in general and Kunin in particular, he will argue with Marx that you do have to include the peasants and others in your revolutionary movement uh, if you want to act on behalf of everyone and not create a new sort of working class nobility, so to speak. So during the 1840s and 50s, we will very faintly start to see some common denominators of the people that will be called political anarchists and that... Um, they deeply detest what they define as the state and centralized forms of power. They have a huge emphasis on individual freedom and equal opportunities and access to uh, resources of society for all classes, and they will vary in their views on revolution and the potential use of violence to reach their means. And they are for the most time atheists. They see the church as a tool for oppression. Bakunin will, for example, see the Reformation as an example where revolution didn't go far enough, when you reach this inevitable tipping point where things would crack, but you only got a new system that has taken on the clothes of the old and that more or less just continued on the same path of oppression, you know, just with a different wrapping. And what ties all these under the same umbrella term socialist is... Well, first and foremost, that they see an equal distribution of wealth as a big societal problem, and they feel that society consists of various classes where the wealthy are oppressing the people that are the ones that are in fact creating value. And they will vary a lot in their views on private property, but will in general be sceptical to how it can be used to create inequality and they will inspire each other and constantly discuss the nature of humankind and history and philosophy, uh, where the anarchists are especially eager to tear down this old system and build new ones, um, where others, as we said, wanted to more take them over and let them be controlled by the working classes. Anyways, in 1844, Bakunin is 30 years old, 
and he starts making a name for himself in these leftist intellectual circles as a revolutionary instigator. And he's being summoned back to Russia by the Tsarist agent, uh, agents, but he refuses to go. We don't know a whole lot about this, but there seems to be this desire to keep some of these people under some form of surveillance, in many ways confirming their own worldview of oppression. Again, we must remember that this is uh, thought and said in societies that are actually monarchies with uh, with a ruler that can actually you know sentence you to death or uh, you know that has complete power in some cases but Kieran is later this year stripped of the titles that he had and his military degree and he will be uh, convicted to penal labor in Russia in absentia so basically mean he's not there but he's basically also a wanted man so, as we said, he is a figure, he's a rather big man, he has this unruly black hair, he will be called the Russian Colossus, and he will obtain a reputation of a bit of a larger-than-life character that will just, you know, be a lot. He will eat a lot, he will drink a lot, he would smoke a lot, and he would talk a lot. We don't really have any good photographs uh, from his earlier years, as we said, Um but we will see that there is, especially towards the end, though he really will make his impression as a, a, a socialist agitator across Europe, and he will um, be famous for his involvement in the International Working Men's Association. During these early years, he meets Bredor, Karl Marx, and he's writing back to their meeting. He's full of praise for Karl Marx, but we already now starts to see that he has some sort of doubts about this German, he, he writes this about Karl Marx, quote, Marx was much more advanced than I was, and he remains today, not more advanced, but incomparably more learned than I am. I knew then nothing of political economy. I had not yet rid myself of metaphysical abstractions, and my socialism was only instinctive. He, though younger than I, was already an atheist, an instructed materialist, a well-considered socialist, end quote. Bakunin will, however, worry that Marx has a personality that is not necessarily to the benefit of the cause, quote. We saw each other fairly often, for I respected him much for his learning and his passionate and serious devotion, always mixed, however, with personal vanity to the cause or the proletariat. I sought eagerly his conversation, which was always instructive and clever, when it was not inspired by a paltry hate which, alas, happened only too often. But there was never any frank intimacy between us. Our temperaments would not suffer it. He called me a sentimental idealist, and he was right. I called him a vain man, perfidious and crafty, and I also was right. End quote. I kind of love this. I kind of adore that Bakunin, to some extent, agrees and understands that he is a bit of a head-in-the-cloud idealist. But it's also clear that these two men are not going along you know they, they they have very different personalities and they you know end of the day they don't like each other anyways we're moving towards the end of the 1840s 
Bakunin is now constantly wanted by the Tsar for writing revolutionary texts and holding speeches and so forth, the Tsar at this point is being Nicholas I, a man that will actually, and quite surprisingly, read Bakunin with great interest, but more on that very soon. The year of 1848 is important, is actually essential and might ring a bell as it is seen as the year of revolutions across Europe. And uh, it just, you know, it, we have just reached this point where all this revolutionary socialist emotion and, you know, the desire for change, it's all about to burst. The cup is full. Everything is just flows over. Historian Christopher Clarke has said that these are not revolutions with one specific intent. They have very many different ideologies and purposes behind them. So these are not at all united revolutions. And in many ways, they are very typical of the 1800s. You know, they are romantic and chaotic. And Clark is thinking about them almost like a natural phenomenon, like a hurricane, for example, and you sort of measure what happens and how much damage they do, depending on how you see things. This is a case of a domino effect, where just the tiniest spark is needed for these revolutions to go all the way through Europe, and it will in fact happen to various degrees to 50 European countries. Just think about that. That's crazy. I mean... There were much, many, many more countries then, but still, it's a lot of countries. So if you are thinking about these idealistic people dreaming of revolution, it is worth noting that when they were alive, this was very much a possibility. Revolution would happen. It was real. Some places, almost nothing was needed for one to get started. In Sicily, a guy starts hanging up posters saying that revolution is starting here at this day and then people will just start showing up to see what it's uh, all about But when it was really a prank. But it goes from there on. And France, you know, is obviously the place that is always up for a little bit of revolution. And they are in many ways centre of the revolutions of 1848 as well. So in February... It breaks out there with a monarch, a guy called Louis Philippe, he abdicates, and the new republic is being declared. And of course, Bakunin, he wants to take as much part as he could in these revolutions. So according to himself, he arrived in Paris right after, quote, <clears throat> This huge city, the centre of European enlightenment, had suddenly been turned into the wild Caucasus, on every street, almost everywhere, barricades had been piled up like mountains, reaching the roofs and on them, among rocks and broken furniture, workers in colourful blouses, blackened from powder and armed from head to foot. Fat shopkeepers with faces stupid from terror, timidly looking out the windows. On the streets on, and boulevards, not a single carriage. And the dandies, young and old, all the hated social lions with their walking sticks and log nets had disappeared, and in their place rejoicing, exulting crowds with red banners and patriotic songs, reveling in their victory, end quote. Now, I just think this gives us a really interesting testimony and quite a colourful one at that to what it was like being part in one of these revolutions. 
And he goes on to tell about the rush he felt during these days in Paris. Quote, Not only I, but everyone was intoxicated, some from reckless fear, others from reckless rapture, from reckless hopes. I got up at five of even four in the morning and went to bed at two. I was on my feet all day, participated vigorously in all the meetings, gatherings, clubs, outings, processions, demonstrations. In a word, I imbibed with all my senses, through all my pores, the ecstatic atmosphere of revolution. End quote. I mean, wow, who wouldn't be caught up in that? You know, it almost sounds like being to Woodstock or something, like he's high on LSD and, and you have all these other young people there believing in something, empowered and feeling bold. What the problem is with many revolutions, and particularly those in 1848, is that people have a very different view of what needs to be done when you sort of start scratching the surface you know, okay, we toppled the king, now what? Some of the reason for that is that you basically have very little opportunity to organise before it all of a sudden breaks loose. So you can't, of course, have large open gatherings and public meetings, uh, planning and sort of handing out responsibilities and so forth on how to topple the current regime. That wouldn't work. So when stuff like this happened, they had to improvise. And in France... The ruler that will end up winning the election when they're holding one is a very much monarchical figure, namely a guy that will be known to history as Napoleon III. And you guessed it, a family member of the old Grand Napoleon. It's his nephew, to be exact. Now, he will technically become the first president of France, but then in 1851, three years later, he decides that no further elections are necessary and he becomes president for life before he, in the next year, actually thinking about it, thinking that, you know, republic, you know, what's the point, kind of a necessary, and then he just went for the title of emperor. So you're going from having a king before the revolution, yet again having an emperor four years after. Anyways. But Kunin leaves France shortly after, and he seems hell-bent on striking while the iron is hot. He is one of these people that really wants to fuel this domino effect of revolutions, and bear in mind what he is oppressing. It's not liberal democracies, but quite oppressive monarchies. And reading Bakudin now with our contemporary glasses on, it sometimes seems that he in some ways is only promoting rather standard democracies that we have today. And, you know, but you have other situations as well. The next moment he seems like a quite rabid extremist. So you get a bit of both. In 1848, he publishes a short statement called Appeal to the Slavs, as he had developed a very strong affection for Slav independence, and also remember that this was a time where nations like Poland was absorbed by Russia in Prussia, so he saw this as one of the great places to further the revolution, and I'll quote some passages from this note that turned into be a quite crucial note and that will be circulated and read a lot. And that will also illustrate how we today will see some of this as, on the one hand, very reasonable call for, you know, greater freedom, but on the other hand, also as rather extreme. 
The firstly, there's a passage where he talks about the revolutionary wave that has started, quote, Everybody had come to the realisation that liberty was merely a lie where the great majority of the population is reduced to a miserable existence where, deprived of education, of leisure and of bread, it is fated to serve as an underprop for the powerful and the rich. The social revolution, therefore, appears as a natural, necessary corollary of the political revolution, It has likewise been felt that as long as there may be a single persecuted nation in Europe, the decisive and complete triumph of democracy will not be possible anywhere. The oppression of one is the oppression of all, and we cannot violate the liberty of one being without violating the freedom of all of us. The social question, a very difficult question, bristling with dangers and heavy with portents of storms, cannot be resolved either by a preconceived theory or by any isolated system. Its solutions calls for goodwill and unanimous cooperation. End quote. I mean, in one way... He's talking about democracy, and he does that a lot, actually. He talks more about democracy than anarchy, to be fair. So, again, depends on what kind of glasses you're looking this uh, through, through for, for, for understanding this. I mean, in one way, it almost seems like he's making a case for sort of a modern-day European Union, right? Wanting education and food for common people, democracy, everybody needs to be free. Um, the thing is that he sees... That revolution is the only natural solution to get there. And, I mean, after all, you can't vote a king out of office, but this is what will sound more extreme to us. Quote, The eyes are all fixed upon you with breathless anxiety. What you decide will determine the realisation of the hopes and destinies of the world. To arrive soon or to drift away to a remote and uncertain future... It is to be your welfare or your loss, the blessings of the peoples upon you or their condemnation of you. Make your choice. The world is split into two camps. On one side, the revolution, and on the other, the counter-revolution. And the clear alternatives are before you. Each of us must choose his camp, you as well as ourselves. There is no middle road. Those who point to a middle road and recommend it to you are either self-deceived or deceivers, end quote. So this is more classical extremist stuff. You know, he's saying, listen up, there's only two options. It's black or white. It's either this or that. So even though there are quite many aspects with Bakunin that seems reasonable and almost modern, many of these thinkers at this time, there is often this as well, you know, and while he's not actively saying that violence is the key or necessarily for the revolution to happen, he clearly also states that diplomacy will be futile and that we cannot bargain with these people that we are to depose. If we try to do that, we will always lose. They will always find a way to rig the system and get back to power is essentially what he's saying. Again, this is an extreme time period where these people are actually seeing the revolution is both possible and can generate results. And it should be said that reading 
a lot on Bakun, and he is rather clear in general on the things he would like, but he is pragmatic and he is willing to change his position. Perhaps that's the dialectic thoughts coming into play, uh, so he does not come off as fanatical, although clearly idealistic, but he's also adjusting his message a bit regarding to who he's speaking to, and we will see that very clearly soon. But he is aware of his audience, so the tone of voice will change regarding who he's talking to, so his appeal to the Slavs is rather short and easy to understand, aimed at the common people in and around modern-day Poland, trying to sort of cause uh, an uprising there. It should be said, it does not seem that he is instigating these things as he has his own ambitions, uh, in the sense that he is not seeking power for himself, at least there has no been, not been any allegations of such, uh, or sources to indicate that, but he is an idealist that is fully committed, perhaps one would still say intoxicated, as he, a word he used himself, by the potential for change and the emergence of a new and, in his eyes, better world. Even in his slighter power struggles, there is not a case that he is accused of trying to convince others in order to gain power himself. The criticism will be that he is promoting a form of socialism that Marxists will see as wrong in terms of potential for success, in terms of how they view human history and how their ideal society should look like. And they will criticise the anarchists for being too chaotic and unrealistic, while Bakunin will criticise Marxists for replacing one oppressive system with another, and they will perhaps both be right to some extent. So the power struggles we will go into are power struggles that has to do with ideology and philosophy more than what individual will have the power to be quote-unquote more equal than the rest, the quote Animal Farm. Both Marx and Bakunin would likely have hated Stalin, for example. At this stage, they are seeing this as an international movement more than uh, socialists are conspiring to take over power in one specific country. They want the revolution to spread across all of Europe, as we just said, Bakunin said, so long as there may be one single persecuted nation in Europe, the decisive and complete triumph of democracy will not be possible everywhere. So there is this belief that as long as not everybody are free, none will be free, and this will be part in what will trigger some of the right-wing nationalism later on, that they will see that this leftist socialism that knows no borders and to some extent uh, actually want to eradicate nation states that will be a huge threat to their national identity and they will flock to the so-called strong men uh, go the other way to authoritarians that want to preserve national identity often by dreaming of a glorious past that never really existed but that serves the purpose of unifying people around the idea of more geographical and partly cultural identity more than ideological identity, and that's a huge difference here. So anyway, Bakunin is really gearing up at this point, very much a player in the year of revolutions of 48. There will be an extremely busy year from him. He's trying to strike while the iron is hot, as we said, and in March, after the revolution in France, he tries to reach Poland in order to instigate Slav revolutions there. He ends up being travelling all around Germany, sometimes he's being harassed and forced to leave places. He attends the Slav Congress in Prague in June, so he is in many ways making 
making a name for himself all around Europe, and he's publishing several several articles and attending meetings, and is becoming more and more a wanted man for his revolutionary activities, and the Russians at this point really wants to arrest him. A bit of a curious and interesting point that um, is that he is at this time befriending Richard Wagner, the famous German composer that Adolf Hitler would be such a huge fan of. If you heard the episode we made about the year to change Hitler, you might remember that he just worshipped Wagner. And it is, of course, a bit ironic that Wagner himself was not untouched by this left-wing wave going all over Europe, and that he was himself an admirer of Bakunin, hanging out with him on what seems like a fairly regular basis for a short while, um, there is in fact actually an arrest warrant for Wagner from Dresden in 1849, which is available online, uh, and that is the time when he and Bakunin hung out. Uh, and this would be a time where they discussed the revolution, high-flying ideas of politics. Bakunin would lie on the couch in Wagner's house, smoking and lecturing about how individual freedom was sacrificed on the altar of the state, and, and similar things. Seeing as we are now in 1849, that means that the year of revolutions is actually over. That is, it will go on for a little bit longer, having touched about these 50s countries, or perhaps um, uh, not so astounding when you think about how many countries there were, but basically most of mainland Central Europe is affected somehow. England sort of goes free a little bit. The revolution in Dresden in 49 is in what is then the German state of Saxony, one of these very last small revolutions, and Bakunin is there with Richard Wagner and many other young men trying to instigate reforms through these uprisings, or actually, more specifically, they want to press through a new constitution that has been made as a result of these earlier revolutions, uh, it's been made in something called the Frankfurt Parliament. Uh, and to be honest today, this would not be seen as very radical. They wanted to unite Germany under a constitutional monarchy. So basically what they wanted was, you know, they still accepted the king. They even wanted the king still. But, you know, removing power from him and that the country would be ruled as a democracy so they actually try to implement a quite similar form of government that is very common in democratic countries in Europe today. The Prussian king was, however, disgusted by this idea, and then fighting commenced, and you know, about 200 revolutionaries uh, were killed, and about 30 soldiers from uh, Prussia and Saxony over a few days. Prussian soldiers came to, to the aid of the Saxon uh, soldiers. Now, reading this today, both the demands for reform and the way the protests started is surprisingly mild. It is not a case of armed, rabid socialists conspiring and gathering arms and then trying to kill as many government troops as possible. This is more a case of rather highly educated people from many different countries gathering, trying in rather orderly fashion to create a new set of laws 
And this revolution turns violent as a chain reaction that really starts with rather peaceful means of persuasion, and then it gets out of hand when fear builds up, lack of communication, anger and emotion arises for, you know, reaching through, and then the first shots are fired by some soldier, and that again will enrage people, and then shortly after you have barricades building up in Dresden, with the composer Richard Wagner allegedly making hand grenades there, and you start to have open street battles. The Saxon soldiers were reinforced, as we said, by Prussian soldiers, so you would have about 3,000 revolutionaries against 5,000 professional soldiers, so of course the rebels had no chance whatsoever. And as we've said, Karl Marx has met Bakunin briefly at this point, but they are yet to become rivals. And in 1852, Karl Marx will deliver a report on the uprisings in Dresden to an American publication depicting Bakunin favorably, favorably, quote, <clears throat> in Dresden, the battles in the streets went on for four days. The shopkeepers of Dresden, organized into community guards, not only refused to fight, but many of them supported the troops against the insurrectionists. Almost all of the rebels were workers from the surrounding factories. In the Russian refugee Mikhail Bakunin, they found a capable and cool-headed leader, end quote. And he's calling him a refugee because Bakunin was at this point wanted all over Europe and he was, uh, he was forced away from many different places and probably a fair few other states also tried to arrest him. But the revolution in Dresden will not only be the end of this revolutionary wave across Europe, it would also be a turning point in the life of Mikhail Bakunin as he is one of many arrested and is seen as one of the ringleaders, although that is disputed. But he was starting to become a quite famous revolutionary regardless of this. In his biography on Bakunin from 1920, Guy Aldred, that it should be said his writing with some political bias, writes this, quote, <clears throat> At Chemnitz he was seized by treachery with two of his companions, and from that time, 10th of May 1849, commenced his long martyrdom. Even then, his proud and courageous demeanour did not desert him. Twenty-seven years afterwards, one of the Prussian officers who had guarded the prisoner on the way through Altenburg still remember the calmness and intrepidity with which the tall man in fetters replied to a lieutenant who interpolated him that in politics the issue alone can decide what is great action and what is a crime. End quote. Richard Wagner, he escapes, but about 1,200 others are arrested and after drifting around Europe for several years, building up a reputation as a political thinker, idealistic freedom fighter, Russian colossus and this, you know, anarchist version of Hagrid from the Harry Potter movies, or at least is similarly looking, Bakunin ends up in chains. And in so many ways, this could easily have been the end of our story. But to be honest, our story has not even started for real. But, you know, Bakunin's life in the mid-1800s are both so damned colourful and it gives us invaluable context. So that is why we have been spending all this time on his life thus far. If we jumped straight into the Marxism and anarchism without any context, I suspect many would just stare away, I might at least. I think it's necessary to understand this thoroughly historically, and not only in the 
potentially perhaps a little bit patronising, perhaps simplified view of late 1900s, you know, kind of college students' view of lifted politics. Context is key, and sorry if I just offended uh, any other people that used to identify as a punk rocker just like I did in my youth. That is not the intention. You know, whether it's Hitler or Quisling or Bakudin, we are digging towards the core of very different political ideologies through some of the main people as best as we can. Anyways, we are now in 1850. Bakunin is put into jail and he is sentenced to death. So by all means, it really should have been the end of the story. But his death sentence is changed to life imprisonment. This is in what is then the Kingdom of Saxony. However, as we've said, Bakunin is a bit of a revolutionary poster boy and many governments are mad at him for various articles he has written and instigations and they are basically looking to settle the scores after this wave of revolutions. So he's handed over to Austria and is then sentenced to death a second time this time while in Prague. I mean, imagine getting two death sentences in two different countries for the same thing. I mean, people must really be pissed off at you then. And this actually will be one of the claims to fame for Bakunin and part of his myth. You might have picked up the political Guy Aldred quote from right before speaking about his martyrdom. And in many ways, Bakunin is about to become one of the main martyrs of the political left post the revolutions of 1848 that will definitely gain him a lot of street cred. Then his second death sentence is again undone and replaced with a sentence of life imprisonment and then he's finally returned back to Russia, back to the Tsar. They are sending him back home in chains to serve out his stays in the Peter and Paul Fortress in St. Petersburg in the western section known as the Alexeyevsky Ravine. Incidentally, the exact same place that Fyodor Dostoevsky had done some time a couple of years before him and famously been exposed to a mock execution. Actually, I curiously discovered that the first person to ever escape this fortress specifically designed for political prisoners would be the later great political anarchist Peter Kropotkin that we briefly mentioned earlier, some 15, 20 years later, that's when he escapes. Anyway, now most timelines of Bakunin here will take a long break while he is in prison, but we will not because there is, to my amazement, one very important source coming into the frame here that will often not be mentioned elsewhere and that I was completely unaware of, but it's pure gold. You see, that while incarcerated incarcerated in St. Petersburg, Bakunin was offered to write a confession to the Tsar himself. Now, it's unclear why, but likely it had something to do with him originally being a nobleman and that he was, you know, still seemed to have certain exclusive rights. He did seem to have access to certain luxuries, others did not, occasionally cigars and alcohol, but perhaps also because he at this time is a famous revolutionary and that the government was very curious at what went on. So it might also be a, you know, kind of cynical stuff, like let's make this pig squeal kind of thing, we don't know. But as with many other things... It might be a combination. Various people might have various agendas. But what is amazing about this confession to the Tsar 
is, first of all, that he actually did write it. And not only did he write it, but it is as long as a whole book. He would have had plenty of time in jail once he decided to do it, of course. And for us, this is invaluable as a source because some of the reason Bakunin got a bit forgotten was that he really never wrote any great works. All his books that are published are mostly just collections of letters and articles that he published in in various newspapers and so forth. So he did write a lot, but he never wrote anything like Das Kapital and so forth, even though he actually translated it to Russian. But during the end of his days, when he was you know, begged to write one, you know, one, at least one great political work, or at least one of his, one book of his story, his own biography, not only all these fragments of texts, he lamented laconically, quote, my life is but a fragment, end quote. And this is why this confession is so spectacular, because it gives us a whole other color to his life story and the quotes we have used earlier regarding the intoxication of revolution and so forth, they actually come from this text. This is a very different tone than what he would have, for example, in uh, in his letters to the Slav revolutionaries that would be much more, you must choose side now, you know, the time of revolution is at hand and so forth. It's nothing about his own personal feelings and desires. Now, the second most astounding thing about this confession is that not only did the Tsar read it, but we know now know that he read it with great interest. He took notes. He underlined several passages. And then he instructed his son that was going to inherit the crown to read it carefully as he thought it, quote, was very interesting and instructive, end quote. I mean, that's insane, isn't it? The Tsar, in this case, Nicholas I, reads a long text uh, from a revolutionary rotting away under rather awful conditions, even though he might have had cigars, you know, he would soon be losing many teeth from scurvy, for example. So this Tsar is sitting in his extreme luxury a few buildings away and is mesmerized by a text from a prisoner in his dungeon. It almost sounds like a movie, doesn't it? His son, Alexander II, will be called the Liberator for the Emancipation of Russian Serfs some 10 years later. You know, I'm highly unsure whether or not Bakudin helped inspire any of this. The Emancipation came partly as a result of the Crimean War, uh, because it turned out that it was difficult to conscript soldiers when everyone was tied to their land, and the system would basically crumble if he put a uniform on the peasants and took them away. But fans of Bakunin might at least dream that his talk about the desire for freedom among the common folks played a small part. We have no idea, of course. Some uh, of the parts of this text that the Tsar underlines are the rather most obvious ones, such as Bakunin going into detail about specific revolutions. And in one way, if you want to look at this in a very anti-Bakunin way, you would say that this is a condemned man that is groveling for his emperor in order to save his life, you know, a fake revolutionary that is about to throw all his ideas and thoughts under the bus to save himself, and... Uh, that names others uh, that names others that took part of the revolution as well. In fact, this confession will be kept under lock for seventy years 
until 1921, but fragments of the text will be released in order to discredit Bakunin and the political left in general. On the other side, reading it with the glasses of today on, it's actually a rather fantastic piece of work, because he is addressing the emperor as one would think. Remember that this is a confession he has been offered to write directly to the Tsar personally. It's almost like he is asked to make a confession before God kind of thing. So he will use all the correct terms you would expect from a Russian nobleman, such as your majesty, your excellency, sire, your grace, and so forth. And you can imagine that wording like this will not sound great for later revolutionaries. It is a huge negative this in his so-called street cred, as we called it. But on the other hand, he's actually almost comically not really caving in I would say it's been on definition, but he's trying to argue for the beauty of revolution to the Tsar of all people, wrapped into these polite phrases and formal addresses that you would expect anyone addressing the Tsar would make. And he's doing it kind of cleverly. He's being very careful not to step on the toes of Russia. So he will be talking about the fatherland and motherland and so forth. And in many ways portrays this as something that the corrupt monarchies in the West is uh, is struggling with and the people are not liking this and that they must be toppled and how people there are suffering uh, so he's extremely clear repeatedly that will he will not name any other russians and he has gotten a little bit of credit for that actually because he's not really ratting anyone else out to the Tsar that is not known although he mentions quite a few uh, french and, uh, and other revolutionaries anyways it's a really interesting document. It's hard to interpret, but he also follows a pattern where he admits that he has committed sins. So in many ways, it's probably a confession, but it's also a lot of double communication. He kind of says, I'm sorry, not sorry, uh, that even though he knows he's broken the law uh, with instigating and calling for the people, he basically has done it for all the right reasons. And uh, apparently he likes to call his confession a combination of fancy and truth. Personally, I just see it interesting, and 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 we definitely is a case for him also pleading for his life. Um, uh, I'll give you a few quotes from the most perhaps for him embarrassing parts of it. Um, quote. In a word, sire, there was neither limit nor measure to my crime in thought and intentions against your sacred authority. And once more, I thank Providence for stopping me in time and not permitting me to commit or even begin a single one of my disastrous ventures against you, my sovereign, or against my motherland. I fully and from the depth of my soul that most of all I am a criminal against you, sire, a criminal against Russia, and that my crimes deserve the most severe punishment, end quote. Of course, his defense is basically writing these under terrible conditions, and um, some of this, I think, also is largely cultural, reading a bit of old Russian from the 1800s. But Bakunin is pragmatic, and he will, of course, also both later and now be of the perception that the laws of states are artificial and that they have been created as means of oppression. So I sense a very careful choice of wording through all this. But anyways, uh, at some at one point it almost seems like it works, but because the Tsar is writing on the side of the document, quote, 
The sword does not sever the head that has acknowledged guilt. May God forgive him. End quote. And the part, first part is uh, allegedly a part of a Russian proverb. So there is seemingly a very moved Tsar reading about his nobleman in jail being led astray by the revolutions, at the same time giving him valuable insights to the life on the barricades. And I'll try not to get too caught up in this fantastic source that I feel like I've won the lottery to stumble across, but we must still dig into it a little bit more uh, because um, for what it's worth, it gives us unique insights. Bakunin discusses the revolutions of forty-eight in detail, but he also sees the Frankfurt National Assembly that wrote the constitution calling from a de- democratic republic in Dresden and Saxon as too Germanic and getting focused on a united Germany too much rather than also including the other revolutionaries and their thinking in other countries, ac- accusing them for being a bit selfish, which the sergeant loves, quote, beautiful. End quote. And then he will also add these other notes, which is kind of hilarious. That Tsar is almost rooting for Bakunin through all this. He's adding things as about time, and I wish he had sent it about a letter that is mentioned. And Bakunin, perhaps playing to the Tsar's ego, is saying that if the Tsar had united the Slavs against the pesky Germans, they would have loved it. And the Tsar, in fact, seems to vividly imagine himself as a revolutionary for a point there, writing, quote, I don't doubt it. I would have stood at the head of the revolution as a Slav, Masaniello. Thank you. End quote. Now, Masaniello was an Italian that had led a rebellion in the 600s, uh, 1600s, sorry, apparently. Again, all this is just super weird. Bakunin is flattering the Tsar that all of a sudden dreams of being a revolutionary. Now, for those that wanted Bakunin to be this faultless god of revolution, this confession is, of course, not great stuff. But as historical source, it's great as long as you check it for, treat it for what it is. He also briefly mentions Marx in it as one of the leaders of the German communists and says that Marx, quote, had come to hate me more than others because I did not want to be forced to attend their societies and their meetings, end quote. So, already we see this bit of tension between these two. It's also worth noting that Bakunin describes Marx as a communist while he is considering himself as a democrat at this time period. No one really seems to call him an anarchist at this early point and... Uh, Bakunin uses the word anarchy, actually, as we would today, as a negative word uh, for chaos. He will, however, later on identify as an anarchist or a social anarchist and, and such. At the same time, he has a very interesting view on how he imagined the revolution to progress. And I think he's speaking uh, so freely and allows himself to do so because he's thinking... Uh, that he's talking about rivaling empires uh, and that the the emperor will have no problems reading about how he wants to dismantle the others, you know, the Austrian-Hungarian empire um, and specifically a part called Bohemia that is today the western part of the Czech Republic. He writes, quote, I hoped for a decisive radical revolution in Bohemia in a word 
one that, even if it was subsequently defeated, succeeded so in overturning everything and turning everything upside down, that the Austrian government, after its victory, would not find a single thing in its old place. Taking advantage of the fortunate circumstance that all the gentry in Bohemia, and in general the whole class of rich landowners, consisted exclusively of Germans, I wanted to drive out all the gentry, all those hostilely inclined clergy, and having indiscriminately confiscated all the landed property of the masters, divided part of it among the poor peasants to encourage them to join the revolution, and turned part of it into a source of extraordinary revenue for revolution. I wanted to destroy all castles, burn absolutely all documents throughout all of Bohemia, all administrative as well as juridical government and manorial documents, and declare all hypothecs paid as well as all other debts not exceeding a certain sum, for example, 1,000 or 2,000 golden. In a word, the revolution I was planning was terrible and paralleled although it was directed more against things than against people, end quote. So he's very honest about this. He really wanted a societal reboot, and even if he understands that the armies and the soldiers will eventually catch up, he seems to have wished to make so many changes in uh, as possible in a short amount of time that they will have no choice but to accept some of them. And he sees these revolutions as small windows of opportunities, uh, opportunity where you can really sort of reshuffle the deck. Another bias that we might have against some of these peoples are uh, that they had completely pie-in-the-sky kind of ambitions with revolutions. And what is probably more the problem is that so many of these people had very different goals. But looking at some of these goals, in one way, he kind of realized that these revolutions will in fact never succeed in completely overthrowing governments as they do not seem to be wanting all the time to raise an army. It's more creating an opening for getting as much social reform done as possible. However, he also goes on about more violent hypotheses of his revolution that one should arm people in order to try to protect the new order. So we cannot say that he is purely or entirely peaceful. Had he succeeded, I think you could have had some severe bloodbaths. Um, uh, and we will see some of those later in 1871 with the Paris Commune. It might not be fair to, to compare, but at least maybe that's the best sort of example we have. And to be fair, these monarchs of the 1800s in Europe, they are not really monsters, there are many of them. There, there seems to be some understanding amongst them also that there are certain needs for social reform. And, you know, they seem somehow, maybe they are unsure about how to how to start to go about them. And since we are also coloured by what happens in the 1900s with the role ideology plays in the world wars and the communist revolution, we might sort of lose a bit of track of that. But in many ways, at this point, it is uh, uncertain if calling Bakunin an anarchist is even fair because he describes the Germans as 
anarchical in their mindset in a negative way. They can't agree on anything, according to him or the French. On the other hand, they finally managed to unite and are efficient. And the Tsar, he's loving this. He's gobbling it up. You can literally sense him jumping up and down his chair in excitement, reading this stuff as he's writing stuff like, quote, a striking truth with several exclamation marks and so forth. And Bakunin at this time describes himself as a Democrat first and foremost, and he would later also prefer the term collectivist. So just so we are constantly aware that these labels are being difficult, libertarian socialism is a term that's often used that perhaps better suited in many ways than, than anarchy if we have trouble sort of liberating ourselves a little bit from the, from the tone this word has to us today. Anyways, towards the end of his confession, Bakunin goes into detail about what happens in Dresden. He admits to taking a leading role in commanding the revolutionary armed men, but refuses to have given orders in, uh, according to setting or wanting to setting the city afire. That happens towards the end. He writes, quote, I never gave orders for this. I would have agreed even to this, however, if I had only thought it possible to save the Saxon revolution by fires. I could never understand why one should feel sorrier for houses in and inanimate objects than for people. The Saxons, as well as Prussian soldiers, amused themselves by shooting at innocent women looking out the windows, and no one was surprised by this. But when the Democrats, for their own defence, began to set fire to houses, everyone began to scream about barbarism. End quote. And he then goes on to say that they all ensure that their wounded counterparts were treated well, but that the soldiers on the other side had little qualms about killing civilians that had nothing to do with the revolution, and who who knows, right? But the numbers, I think we said, were uh, 31 soldiers killed and 200 uh, civilians or revolutionaries during these four days. He ends up confession, uh, confessing uh, to his crimes and sins against the Tsar, saying that they are correct. He, uh, he has done all this, and he ends his confession asking not to be kept in solitary confinement in the fortress forever, but that he would rather prefer to be shot or given forced labour. So, we have no idea whether or not Bakunin ever receives any feedback on his confession, but it did not seem to have helped him much in the short term because he will be staying at this prison for three more years until 1854 when he is transferred to a place called Schlüsselberg. That likely was not much better, rather horrible fortress apparently used to keep political prisoners. So this is it's kind of medieval standards in these dungeons. You have dark walls underneath the ground. You have people literally being kept in chains that are stuck to the walls. It's kind of horrible conditions. And when the new Tsar takes over in 1856, he pardons a fair few political prisoners, but Bakunin will not be amongst them. But his fortunes will change the next year, at least partly, when he is sent into exile in Siberia as a penal colonist, which must actually have been a huge relief for him. Allegedly, the new Tsar tells his family that he would never be a free man again and forbids him to ever return to quote-unquote civilised Russia, that is the, the bigger cities in the West, but he does seem to have gained much more freedom there in Siberia and even marries in 1858. He 
is then transported to a place that's called Amur, that is really far east. It's bordering China. Um, and this is at the time when one of the big European heroes, at least revolutionary heroes of the 1800s, is up and about. He's an Italian called Giuseppe Garibaldi. Now, Garibaldi, he is many things. He's a general, perhaps first and foremost, but he's also a big revolutionary, playing a big role in the unification of Italy under a democratic Republican rule. So basically, he is one fighting for democracy in Italy and having no king. And at this point, that's one of many things that starts spreading again around Europe perhaps uh, spark, providing another spark to the revolutionary attitudes of 1848. And it becomes clear that this is still a time of change, even though many of these revolutions petered out into nothing. And these new sort of little tiny bit of revolutionary waves even reaches Bakunin, where he is living his new life, in eastern Russia, far away from everything and everyone, and he decides that he wants to escape. So he starts, and what will be something rather exceptional, something that will again help promote and build up the myth about Mikhail Bakunin in Europe. So he seems to have left his wife, not sure what happens to her, but he is escaping on the Amur River before boarding an American clipper that is taking him to Japan, and he ends up in the city of Yokohama. In Japan, he finds further transportation by ship, taking him to the west coast of the United States, to San Francisco. He then goes through the Panama Canal to New York, and then there's a new ship going to Liverpool in England, and he arrives there right before the new year in 1861, 10 years after writing his confession, and 12 years after being imprisoned under terrible conditions, and he arrives at the house of his old friend, Alexander Herson in London, to everybody's complete surprise, saying something like, you're eating oysters in here. So, bit of a myth that, but it's an exceptional escape, really. And according to Guy Aldred, that would write his biography in the 1920s, the resurrection of Bakunin was seen with great enthusiasm. You know, he's almost like the Messiah that, that has returned to the revolutionary scene of Europe by a really improbable route. He's escaping Russia to Western Europe, but by going the long way through Asia and the US. Aldred writes this, quote, Bakunin is in London. Bakunin, buried in dungeons, lost in eastern Siberia, reappears in the midst of us, full of life and energy. He returns more hopeful than ever, with redoubled love for freedom's holy cause. He is invigorated by the sharp but healthy air of Siberia. With his resurrection, how many images and shadows rise from the dead. The visions of 1848 reappear. We feel no longer that 1848 is dead. It has only changed its place in the order of time. Such were the greetings with which all English lovers of freedom and members of the revolutionary working class committees welcomed the approach of the new year 16. 
1862, end quote. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is where we will round off this first half out of two about Mikhail Bakunin, the revolutionary, the anarchist, that has now, as someone always risen from the dead, returned to the revolutionary scene in Europe and will for real set his mark on revolutionary activities and the emergence of socialism. When we return next time, we will see how he will continue his revolutionary activity that will culminate with a huge clash with Karl Marx and the internal struggles of the international. And this huge what-if question, how easily could Bakunin and the more liberal socialists slash anarchists have won and what would that have had to say for everything that happened in the 1900s? Would we even have a Soviet Union? Well, we will discuss these questions more next time. In the meantime, feel free to give this show a review on whatever app you are listening on. All feedback is highly appreciated. Until next time, cheers. I'm